Poochie D, and I rock the telly. I'm half Joe Camel and a third Bonzarelli. I'm the kung fu hippie from Gangster City. I'm a rapping surfer, you the fool I pity. Oh, Poochie is one outrageous dude. He's totally in my face. And welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinemas Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined, as always, by Kate Rennebaum. Hello. And this week we are joined by uh, the spouse of one of your hosts. I'll let you figure out which, Olivier Crure. Hello, it is me, Kate's husband. <laughs> Jesus, thanks for the spoiler, um, yeah, Olivier. Yeah, for reasons that even I can't deduce being married to Olivier, Olivier waited until these episodes to take the hot opportunity to get on this podcast. So, you know. You know, I think I think a lot of guests would would kind of think, oh, I wish I was coming on the podcast under better circumstances, better episodes. I'm thrilled to be here for these, these four or five episodes. These are some of my absolute favorites. I think they are a master class in writing just tonal shit. So I can't wait to get into it with both of you. Absolutely. Starting us off with a good a good good mood, good spirit, picking us up <laughs> after uh, having watched these five episodes. Uh, it's going to be great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I hope no one is upset with us that we're drastically picking up the pace uh, both this week and next week. On the spreadsheet that I made when I was first planning this podcast, I refer to these episodes as the dark days. And <laughs> these are truly the darkest of the days. This This stretch of episodes... Uh, is d- just just to be clear, uh, we are going to be discussing the twelfth through sixteenth episodes. Twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Yes, twelfth through sixteenth episodes of season two. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yes, or or in the alternate numbering, which is what I've been using, uh, nineteen through twenty three. If you're just counting right from the beginning, uh, nineteen through twenty three. Right. Um, it's uh, we're not going to attempt any kind of sort of chronological, um, methodical uh, trip through these episodes, kind of like we've attempted in previous episodes. Uh, we're just going to uh, I think maybe the the best thing to do would be to start with um, what what are some some relative highlights in these episodes? Things things we like yeah, uh, I, I, before we yeah, and I yeah. wanted to start with um, one of my highlights, which is. Um, in the second of these episodes, uh, we get this standoff uh, between uh, Jean, who's got Cooper hostage, mm-hmm. and you know, and the authorities. These, the standoff, the standoff itself is nothing special, but I will say that I kind of love Michael Parks in that sequence. He's just like he's delivering this insane monologue about like before you came here, Twin Peaks was a nice place where you could. Uh, uh, have sex with underage girls and uh, <laughs> sh- shoot heroin with the prostitutes, like uh, like a nice person, and uh, deal cocaine to the teenagers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it's it is really just a remarkable performance. Uh, I mean, yeah, the whole the all of the dead dog farm stuff. Like, you know, we were I was saying this to Olivier. I mean, I think for one thing, watching these episodes, it always. I, you know, like the the legend of how awful they are tends to kind of shade your approach to them. And you know, mostly Olivia and I watching them today, it's like you know we're sort of saying mostly these aren't as awful as you might expect. It's like not everything in them is terrible. There's usually at least sort of forty percent of the episode that is kind of redeemed. And in these first few episodes, it's the dead dog farm stuff. At least sort of gives the episodes a bit of a structure and like you know, events that sort of are linked together and make sense and are of some interest. Um, 
I don't mind the dead dog farm stuff. I think it's fine. I, again, I really like Denise. Uh, one of my personal highlights that I've always loved is the scene where Cheryl and Fenn, where Audrey is introduced to Denise. And it's unclear. Like, like it's you sort of, the way it plays is that Audrey um, it misses the kind of transgender aspect and, and thinks that Denise is a biological woman. And is and it like, not like that matters, but she, she just sort of misses all the other extra layer and is just really excited that there is a female FBI agent. And I love that. I love Sherilyn Fenn's reaction. I think she's great in it. Like, for me, it very much reminds me of being 11 years old and discovering Scully on the X-Files as an FBI agent who was a woman and, like, this blowing my mind as an 11-year-old. Like, I just, I love that whole part of the Dead Dog Farm stuff. Yeah, Dead Dog Farm for me is also a pretty a pretty major highlight. But, you know, we were talking this morning, Kate and I, about how despite this spectacular collapse that happens in these four or five episodes, there's still this general pull and this love for these characters in this universe that you still, like even when we rewatch it once a year, which we do now, I can't skip those episodes. I can't, just can't skip them. I have to watch them. And, you know, we mock them every time, but, you know, there, there are these little things here and there that do redeem them. But yes, overall, <laughs> a challenge, but still, still one I, I'm happy to go through every time we watch it. Yeah. So uh, what, what else did we like besides Dead Dog Farms and uh, Michael Parks' delightful accent and anecdotes? I mean, I got to say, uh, Wyndham, Wyndham Earl, the introduction of Wyndham Earl, which I think is a, you know, not, not the greatest uh, villain that they could have introduced um, and who doesn't have the most uh, interesting kind of backstory or one that ties into the universe of the show. But I think that the, the sheer bananas of that performance uh, is pretty great. And especially watching Leo get tortured by Wyndham Earl is always a pleasure. Yeah, my, my personal uh, favorite highlight of watching these episodes is watching Olivier be reduced to, like, giggling tears every time Wyndham Earl comes on and starts, like, hitting Leo <laughs> with his pan flute. Like, it is... It, the, the It's quite hysterical, that stuff. Like, the sequence where Wyndham Earl is, like, straddling Leo and, like, molesting the flute and then, like, whacking the side of Leo's head, like... Like hysteria ensues every time. Well, we... <laughs> what, what I was saying this morning, which is really interesting, is you know in these in these five episodes, I think Simon, you you maybe have been talking about this in the latest episodes, but there's a shift towards the music that's being used. There's like oh, a curious lack of you know traditional musical hallmarks of the show, and you have these ridiculous new motifs and songs that that come in, uh, and a lot of them have flute in them, just like a tapestry of flutes, and. <laughs> And I think what's what's genius about it is that you have these flutes that you kind of put up with in the soundtrack, but then it culminates in real material flutes being used as weapons by Wyndham Earl on Leo, <laughs> which, again, it's like, how can you hate that? It, it comes full circle in a really beautiful way. So, Does it? Does it, it really? Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, we should definitely give the show that much credit that all of the flute usage was a careful foreshadowing oh of where things were going. I, I, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna need to talk about music later on when we talk about. We need to spend like a, a serious block of time just on Diane Keaton's episode. Oh we'll yes, get there. Oh, I know, uh, but. I know. Um, so, uh, dear listeners, Simon wrote to me during this like marathon of us all watching these episodes halfway through and said. Oh man, we probably would need just an hour of podcasting, like alone, fully, just to properly deal with all of the things that are wrong with the Diane Keaton episode. And I wrote back, yes, if only we had all of this time, because truly, we could talk 
at length about everything that is wrong with that episode. Yeah, because it's a lot. Yeah, and anyway, we'll, we'll we'll get there. I promise. But um, yes. I, so Wyndham Earl to me is the Poochie of Twin Peaks. <laughs> Whenever he's not on screen, people mention him a lot, and <laughs> and then when he finally shows up. He's just like the most random assemblage of ticks, and just like why I don't know, man. Is it the the performance to me, and even just the casting of this guy, like this, like almost mythical. He's like you know he's been teased as this almost godlike figure, and then he's just played by this rando, and like he just <laughs> he just kind of looks like a dude, like you know, like he's he's nothing like if if they cast like a David Bowie type to play this guy or like someone with a really odd. Even, you know, like a Chris Isaac type. Like, I keep thinking of people who are actually in Firewalk with me, I guess. But, like, <laughs> you know, someone with, like, a real, uh, like, disabling screen presence or something. Like, s- someone t- to really, like, shake shake things up. But now he's just a guy. Like, he's just a guy doing weird stuff because he can. Like, that, se- that, that's that exact same sequence where, yeah, like, he's... I think as I was, as I was looking at that shot of, you know, Leo on the floor and... and uh, and Wyndham sort of like prancing around playing this like recorder. Um, I was just thinking, wow, like it, this is, this is really it. We're really into the darkness now. That's when I was, that's when it really clued in. Like, this is where it gets really, really bad. <laughs> um, I mean, I think like, yeah, you know, Olivier can uh, speak for himself, but I, but I think for us, like the, the Wyndham Earl stuff for us has always maybe been kind of a highlight in these dark days. Not because it is um, because, you know, Kenneth Welsh's performance is like so great or because it makes a ton of sense, but mostly because it just makes us laugh. I, yeah. I don't know. Like it's there. There is such a weird disconnect between all of the scenes where, as you say, characters are describing Wyndham Earl off screen. Like, I wonder what Poochie is doing, <laughs> like, with, um, you know, with Coop building him up as this insane figure of, oh, his mind is like a brilliant diamond and will never be able to do anything that he hasn't already thought of. And then cut to. Wyndham Earl in dirty long johns <laughs> playing hot on press a rock, buns playing on the <laughs> like, it, like what bizarre bananas universe have we entered where where a writer was writing this and and thinking it made any sense to have this like high comedic you know performance and and direction decisions around him when you see him and then cut to he is the scariest human that's ever lived whenever he's off screen like it, it there is a kind of disconnect there that at least makes me laugh but I, I mean i hope too that there's like there is an element of awareness around that stuff especially when it, it culminates in you know, the only way to defeat Wyndham Earl is by getting Pete involved to play chess with him, you know? <laughs> but I think also something that struck me in, in the last two episodes that we watched, which is perhaps on a more serious note, I think there's something interesting about the Wyndham Earl character and, and his effect on Coop in Twin Peaks. Like, Coop is this is this guy who's in Twin Peaks who's just enamored of the town, of the people there. He really wants to spend his life there. Um, and Wyndham Earl is just this agent, however goofily constructed, that you know, really makes you feel bad for Coop and what this might mean for his future in Twin Peaks. Like, you know, he's, he's kind of bringing all of this personal history into the, into the situation. He's really testing his friendship with Harry because, of course, things were going to happen to Harry, which are really tough for him. So there's like this explosion of the past that comes following Coop in Twin Peaks, um, which maybe could have been handled a little bit better. But I thought it was maybe one of the more interesting aspects of introducing something like Wyndham Earl to the show. Yeah, I mean, what you just described is why, on paper, Wyndham Earl should have been an interesting character. But right. everything about him, even his stupid name, 
is just like you know <laughs> this guy this guy is 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 going to is going to change everything he's going to he is he's a truly truly brilliant mind cut to poochie entering on a skateboard like that's the level of cut, cut to Wyndham Earl having jammed Leo into a child's desk, like tasering him into learning how to write. I mean, I come on, like that is hilarious. Like, oh man, it's not it's not Twin Peaks. Like it makes no, it has nothing to do with the universe of the show as we've seen it so far. But again, as I intimated early on in these podcast episodes, um, for anyone who has never particularly enjoyed Eric DeRay's performance, they at least managed to put it to hilarious use yeah. here. Like, I, I can't... And I mean, yeah, if, we're, if we're talking about favorite moments, too, I mean, that scene you're describing, Kate, with Leo writing, that line just like, no, erase, is just one of the absolute <laughs> best best moments on the show, uh, for sure. I will say, in terms of earnest highlights, um, the, the, the climactic shot of, I think, one of the first two episodes where... Uh, Leo actually does come out of his coma and um, mm. and confronts Shelley is one of the like legitimately uh, frightening moments of these. Like, no, actually the only legitimately frightening moment in any of these episodes. Um, yeah. And then, of course, it's immediately squandered like within moments after it happens. But it's it's a it's a good moment. So I got to give them credit for that. Wait, when you say squandered, is it because it, like they sort of cut to the next scene? Because like I, I actually I had on my list of stuff that I I kind of like uh, the beginning of the next episode, which is uh, the episode Double Play, which was directed by uh, Uli Adel, who was a German director and was just brought in for this one episode. He directed that film Last Ex- Last Exit to Brooklyn, and apparently Lynch knew him. Huh. Um, and and like that episode, yeah, that episode is again the writing and the things that people are doing in it are not great. But like I will give uh, Uli Adel credit. Like the episode is directed fine, like even well, I would say, with some of the stuff that he's been given. For example, the opening sequence is. Um, is what follows after Leo wakes up and you get that terrifying shot of him with the cake stuff, like the clown shot where whatever is going on with the cake on his face and he's screaming. Um, and it's that all that stuff that takes place in the house where Leo is sort of um, menacing Shelley in the dark and Bobby shows up. Like, all of that I think is quite creepy, these sort of like silhouette shots of Leo uh, in the dark. And I mean, for me, like Adele manages to get some genuine atmosphere in that sequence, which is a thing that's missing from basically every other part of these episodes. So Right. I mean, there's an atmosphere to these episodes. The atmosphere is just, uh, it's not a Twin Peaks atmosphere. It's a... Exactly. It's a, if, can you imagine ha- having never seen the show, like trying to get into it by like watching some of these episodes? You would think oh. that millions of yeah. people were insane. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it was actually pretty interesting watching these five episodes over the last couple of days. Uh, without having watched most of the series beforehand, like this this run, it's very odd jumping into them as standalone episodes. Uh, of course, I know them super well, but it certainly heightens all of these crazy idiosyncrasies and flat sides for sure. So do, do we want to keep accentuating the positive or do we want to start getting into uh, why these are such misbegotten failures? Well, we can. I mean, I have a, I have a couple more good things, but we'll we'll get to them. They'll come up later. Uh, anyway, Olivia, what were you going to say? Oh, I just wanted to, to tack on to the, the sequence with leo rising from this coma i think one thing that's really great that they use usually pretty well despite a shift in directors uh is every time you have a really intense scene at leo and shelly's house that set i think works so well as a creepy space almost not not quite to the degree of the creepiness of the set in blue velvet but there's something in the atmosphere of this unfinished house that they always seem to use really really well and you know poor shelly is always just the victim of the most horrifying 
uh, situations in that house. But it is a it is a creepy set, and I thought that they handled that well uh, too. I do I do like the thing the thing too, where like Leo. Uh, despite having just come out of a coma or whatever is going on, has somehow managed to lock every door in the house <laughs> so that it opens from neither inside nor yes. outside is like kind of an impressive, uh, an impressive achievement for him. But then I also enjoy that that culminates with uh, Shelley figuring out, oh my god, the walls are just made out of thin plastic, and I can cut my way. Kind of amazing. Oh, man. Uh, anyway, uh, so anyway, I think my first. Uh, my first grievance with these episodes is just this influx of old evil white men that I'm supposed to care about, mm. like Thomas mm. Eckert and mm. Andrew Packard. Like it really makes you miss Ray Wise so much that like these are now the oh, villains that we have to contend with. Yeah. I know. The whole like using David Warner as uh Thomas Eckert. I mean, do people do you know David Warner? I'm, I'm sure I've seen him before, but I can't think of from where. Well, this is the weird thing, is like David Warner, um I think when he was quite a bit younger, had sort of been like considered a really big deal as a theatrical actor in Britain. Like he I'm not sure if it was Hamlet or something, but he gave some big deal great performance and everyone was like, This guy is the great hope of uh British theatre. And then it just sort of turned out that he kind of made like sort of crap uh, films for years, like in these sort of middling parts in them. I mean, the one that's not a crap film that he's sort of better known from is uh, Time Bandits, is Terry Gilliam's Time oh, Bandits. Yeah. He plays the bad guy in that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I mean, he is an interesting actor and like he clearly can act. And yet, I don't know, for me, I just find him so blah in here. Like the fact that he, they, they brought him in and he's supposed to be such this big deal bad guy that's had such this effect on Josie and this whole thing and I just find him completely blah. I just don't care. And, and I mean, Andrew Packard, like, I guess he gets a little bit more to do, like the scene with Pete where they're kind of yucking it up and whatever. But I, I, both of them, you're right. It's just sort of like, why why are these people here? You know, yet another of the 15 new characters that are in these episodes that we're all supposed to care about that we don't care about. Yeah. I mean, speaking of, I mean, I, I, don't, I almost didn't want to get there right away. But speaking of new people that we're sp- supposed to care about and don't, I completely forgot that these episodes also bring us the arrival of international man of mystery, Billy Zane. Oh, yeah. You know, I was just saying earlier, actually, because we just watched the last, the last episode, what, 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, that Billy Zane, yeah. uh, what's his name? John, John... John Justice John Wheeler. John Justice Wheeler is the only character, to my knowledge, who has his own musical motif, this, like, rye, cootery, Paris, Texas, twang guitar thing. It's... It's really, it's really wild. I don't know why he's the only one. But it's... Uh, I, I think if you, if you, uh, if you listen to the entire like nine-hour Twin Peaks archive, like I think there are a few characters that have themes. Like Audrey's got one uh, for sure, but it is definitely no. I think, I think he just, he just meant like of the new oh, kind of yeah. crappy people yeah. that, come, <laughs> that come in. He, for some reason, is the only one that gets uh, new music, which is a bit confusing. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I, Billy Zane, like, it's funny because I've been, tra- you know, reaching out to people to see if people would have interest in doing these episodes of the podcast. And it makes me laugh because everybody's response, like, jokingly is like, oh, well, make sure that you get me on the Billy Zane episode. <laughs> so, or, or make sure they, or the second most popular answer is make sure you get me on the Civil War episodes. Those are like the two um, ways that everybody remembers the bad oh, episodes i have to say <sighs> of, of all the like random bad dumb things in these episodes uh ben horn reenacting the civil war is by far the least offensive 
it's not bad that stuff i have yeah not mostly bad. because richard Bamer is hilarious and the the fact that the, that like the subplot is literally resolved with a bonk to the head is just <laughs> it's just the right amount of insulting just the right amount i i actually have this this theory this this meta theory that of course uh, you do the, the richard Beamer character the civil war stuff is basically like ben horn stands in for all the horrible stuff in season two and audrey and bobby and jerry and jacoby they're all just trying to get him back to a place of sanity they're just the audience trying to get twin peaks back to this original point of glory uh so if you read it that way <laughs> like you've you've lost your way it makes it yeah it makes it a lot more tolerable i find right personally. except that i mean they succeed and then the show gets way worse for a couple of episodes <laughs> afterwards so it doesn't really hold up <laughs> you're right i have not watched oh. those two I'm t- totally out of context. <laughs> oh man. Um, um, the the civil I find the civil war stuff. There's like a couple of points that are worth making about it. So one was I was laughing about this earlier. Was you kind of have these realizations when you're watching these episodes critically that that manage to make things that are already bad just that much worse. Like when you're actually bringing any kind of like intellectual bearing on these episodes, everything is just so much worse than when you're just kind of half watching them to get through to the good episodes <laughs> at the end. And and one of them is like, okay, so when Ben Horn wakes up at the end after he's been quote cured and he's like, Oh, why are you all wearing those costumes? Um, you know, and even before that, like, so even before Ben gets really bad, he's treating everybody like they're in this Civil War fantasy, right? He, he calls people by names of characters in the Civil War, et cetera, et cetera. And yet everybody insists on building these incredibly intricate sets and putting on these incredibly intricate costumes in order to, like, support Ben's fantasy, even though he's already in it. And none of that makes any sense, um, which is very weird. Also, apparently, like, Beamer has kind of talked about, I mean, we can, I don't know when we want to save the uh, Diane Keaton episode for, but I did enjoy the fact that, that, like, there are interviews with Beamer where he goes on the record being like, I don't know what Diane Keaton was doing. It kind of was like she hadn't ever seen episodes of the show. And one of his main complaints was that she had built these, like, amazing sets for these scenes where Ben, you know, has the final kind of uh, showdown as Robert E. Lee with Grant and wins. And there is a point to that. It's like, did they hire a muralist to paint the inside of Ben's office and, like, this whole big <laughs> stage design with the weeds? Like, really none of it makes a whole lot of sense and and again you know Twin Peaks has never been about sort of logical sense but as you said last time Simon like now it's just irritating like now it's it's not interesting that nothing makes sense it's just irritating yeah um this Um, is as good a time as any to just start to get into the Diane Keaton thing and I I Mm. I, want to preface this by saying that I think it would be easy to just to make fun of this episode because it is directed by noted famous person Diane Keaton and I think it would be easy to just, um, just based on that, sort of make fun of it. Um, but really, it deserves to be made fun of because it is truly awful. And it is every bit, it's actually worse than you imagine based on, you know, this this notion of a, you know, dip in quality era of Twin Peaks episode directed by noted famous person Diane Keaton. What's astonishing to me about the episode is that it is bad on every level like even on, even on the normally reliable levels that like twin peaks is good on like the the music choices are baffling like way more so than usual uh, like to give you an example uh, there's a particular musical motif a, a particular um, not even a motif just a cue that is always was always used to end sequences like you hear it and then you know it's fade to commercial and we're going to go to another sequence 
in the scene that actually should have been hilarious and maybe even touching when Nadine sort of walks in on uh, Ed and Norma. By the way, the Ed and Norma stuff is some of the only good stuff in these episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I like, yeah, I like the Ed and Norma stuff. There's great stuff there. Yeah, uh, mostly because both actors are just so reliable. But they, yeah, anyway, so this, but this sequence is utterly ruined, and so y- this this cue that is reserved exclusively for ending sequences gets used multiple times in the middle of that scene, th- th- thereby making you think, like, wait a minute, is this supposed to be ending now? Like is what what is happening? Like it's it's an absolute like it, it makes the scene feel like it's twelve years long, and it's it's, it's mind boggling. The, the the sound mixing even seems off a lot. Like there are scenes where there's just like a lot of clatter going on, and you can barely hear the dialogue. Uh, the framing is ludicrous. The staging is random. The Dutch angles are infuriating. The last thing I'll mention is like. Every once in a while, she'll get an idea that seems almost clever, like when she does the match cut from the chessboard to the to the floor of the double R. But even that is ridiculous because she uses a match cut to take us from one area of the double R to like another one six feet away. It's like, why did you need a match cut for that? Just pan. <laughs> yep. So, okay, so here is something I did not know in all of the years of watching these episodes and watching this episode directed by Diane Keaton, which is that, and I don't know enough about Diane Keaton to know exactly where this sort of fits into her arc as a kind of artist, but um, it seems like this episode of Twin Peaks was the first thing that Diane Keaton ever directed, period. She, around the same time, directed an episode, another episode of television uh, for the show China Beach, and then eventually went on to direct, like, films and stuff, as people probably know, but um, she'd never directed anything, and I, you know, and again, like, not to say shitty things about Diane Keaton, like, apparently she was very professional, and, you know, the actors all love working with her, and she came in, like, an episode early to, like, see how the other, you know, like, whatever, like, she did her due diligence, I'm sure, but you cannot help but then end up in that kind of scenario with what is effectively like a freshman, um, you know, university level filmmaking project. Like that, that's what this episode feels like. It feels like someone who's been giving a camera and is like, whoa, like I can put transitions and I can have superimpositions where I have three things superimposed over each other as a pointless transition <laughs> that takes up five seconds of time for no reason. Like that's very much how a lot of this episode feels. Yeah, um, like a, a charitable view might be like, okay, well, the showrunners were giving directors coming on a lot of creative freedom to do a lot of stuff, experiment with different techniques and pacing. But to me, it reads just like a complete loss of control at all levels of production, especially post-production. Like if if this, such a, a distinct shift in tone uh, and quality was able to happen, I just, I really do wonder what was happening after... The thing was filmed uh, in terms of post-production. Like, what were Payne and Engels really doing? Like, how was this thing cut? To what degree was... And it just seems very, very weird for something that drastic to happen. From what I can tell in my research, and again, I'm, I'm sure there are many people even listening to this podcast out there who, who know the details of this better than I do, but it does seem like what was going on was that because Lynch and Frost... Um, you know, Lynch had more or less been away for a while, and then Frost was uh, particularly away with the Storyville stuff, that most of the work and, like, the supervising stuff had shifted to uh, Peyton and Engels, who were, had been given producer credits on this season. And, you know, they were writers. Like, these guys were not directors. They were not necessarily people with, like, the kind of aesthetic... Um, 
sensibility that would go into to being a director of something like Twin Peaks. And I think, I don't know, I think Olivier is right, that there was maybe a sense in which they were looking after the story and, you know, with Frost kind of supervising scripts and trying to keep things on that track. But the bottom had completely fallen out of having any sort of guiding vision around I, the the qualities of the show that weren't just concerned with like television writing, you know, like filling up 45 minutes of episodes and having characters do X, Y, and Z. Right. And to be fair, like, let's be clear, the writing is not good here either. Like, it's not like the writing is so good that it makes up for that or something. That isn't what's happening. But I, it just is, yeah, it's a little shocking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's like, I, I think so many narratives that are introduced after Leland is revealed as the killer after Lonely Souls Whereas in the first season, you had this network and you had characters who were never more than a few degrees separated from other characters uh, in their own narratives. Now, every single one feels like it's on its own distinct track, just leading outwards in ways that you don't, you, you can't anticipate, you don't know where they're going to go. And I think that's why the aesthetic shifts hurt so much in this episode is that you're, you're just tacking that stuff on top of narratives that already you're just completely uncertain about what, what they're doing with them. Um, so yes, like all of these transitions and these Dutch angles, it's just, it's a layering of awfulness that's really hard to contend with as a viewer. Yeah, as I was saying, it's it's really like, it's such a comprehensive fail of an episode. Um, nothing is working, not aesthetically, not on a script level, not even really on a performance level. This is also the episode, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, that features sort of the the merciful end of the James and Evelyn story, right? Yes. Like, but it's only it's only merciful because it finally ends after I mean honestly like so okay just so viewers can listeners can situate themselves so the prior to the Diane Keaton episode the ending of the previous episode is the one where uh, Evelyn and Malcolm finally kill Evelyn's husband. That all happens off screen. He's killed in a car crash. Uh, Evelyn comes in and says to James, the, explains the whole, you know, crappy film noir plot of we tricked you into this. And then James walks out the back door and ran, and meets up with Donna on the lawn. You know, even though we never, it's never even remotely explained as to how Donna knew where this place was. But anyway, so meets up with, and, and they leave. And you think, oh, thank God. Like, this is over. <laughs> Every time wrong. I forget. I'm like, yeah, but you're right. You're, I'm like, oh, great. Like, this is, we're done. We're free of Evelyn and uh, Malcolm. And then, no, we have this Diane Keaton episode. And again, this is not her fault. Like, this is the writing. This episode where they insist on dragging it out for yet another full episode. And it's like 40% of this episode. Yeah. It's a lot of time spent with these people. People. And it's all about, right. like, you know, we're supposed to care about Evelyn, her, like, moral quandary about having abused James, sort of, and, like, her being sad, and we're supposed to care about whether or not she might actually love James. No one cares at all about any of this. It's awful. Um, I, I just, it's so brutal. And you get some truly spectacularly horrendous performance stuff from James Marshall. Like, I, I pointed out to Olivier in one of the earlier episodes with all the Evelyn stuff the thing that's so funny about that storyline is the whole storyline sucks so much <laughs> like so thoroughly that it kind of makes james seem fine like it makes him like he just sort of blends into it he doesn't stand out as bad because the whole thing is so awful james. and yet in this i well we're we're pretty this is not we're not nice to him here which is maybe mean but it's just Whatever. We've talked about all of the ways in which, you know, he has his fine qualities, but the show is usually beyond him. And it's so true in the Diane Keaton episode. I mean, there's a moment particularly where Evelyn is like, you get all these 
Keaton shots of uh, Evelyn like draping her fingernails over photographs and then like a close-up of her face and then quick pan up to a door being slammed open <laughs> in another room and James appears and is like, why'd you do it? Like screaming. And it, none of it, like it's just all so awful. My, and so my favorite levels. bad uh, thing yeah. about this subplot is the fact that 40% of it is taken up with this one shot in slow motion of Evelyn blowing smoke rings and making uh, oh, yeah. this, and she's making this face while she's doing it, like, like, she, like the actress had never blown smoke rings before, and she's like concentrating all of her inner resources on figuring out how to do it, and none of it on like look trying to look sexy while doing it. So she's just making this dumb face, and it's happening at like two frames a second. <laughs> and it's it's one of the most like wonderfully awful things I've ever seen. Well, we haven't even listed what for me stands out as maybe the worst of Keaton's like aesthetic crimes here, which is this use of the dropped frame um, slow motion stuff mixed with a kind of like sound manipulation on characters' voices. And you get it twice in this episode, but it's most noticeable uh, at the culmination of the stuff with Evelyn and uh, James and now Donna and Malcolm and like it's all they're all in the living room and who's going to shoot who and blah, 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 blah in this slow motion. And I mean, there's something that's almost offensive about this choice to like try to replicate the um, sound manipulation on the voices as if it's a kind of reference to what Lynch was doing with Ray Wise and Bob in the Lonely Souls episode. Because, you know, Lynch uses slow motion there and there's a manipulation on the voices to create this, like, demonic quality to them. And Keaton trying to do that in this episode is... It just shows such a fundamental lack of understanding about what <laughs> is going on. Like, A, the fact that anyone would even try to put that storyline in any kind of conjunction with Laura Palmer and Ray White. Like, it just is nuts. It's crazy. Ugh. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, there's, in a way, the, the one, my one sort of metatextual defense of Diane Keaton's uh, work and choices in this episode is that Diane Keaton brings the level of craft that that subplot deserves. <laughs> there is kind of a there is some poetry in the pairing Touché. of that material and that and these directorial choices. Mm-hmm. It's true. That's a good point. Yeah, it's true. She definitely rises to the level that the writers are setting for her. Exactly. <laughs> or does she? Um, yep. I mean, <laughs> does she? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's it's a real contest between who can sink lower. Um, <laughs> Oh, God. All these people are listening. I just know it. <laughs> yeah, I bet Diane Keaton has nothing better to do with her time. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but, you know, uh, there was... I, I, I'm i trying to go through my notes and like and pick out like individual things with this episode, but I swear to God, guys, it's mostly... I've written down, ah, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of swears and a lot of things that I can't make out. Uh, and, and everything's in caps, all of it. Uh, yeah, I realized I realized looking over my notes right now that they are basically all uh James Hurley quotes from the uh, Evelyn <laughs> scenes. That's all they are. Just just things that James says or does that I love a lot. And that's, oh, that's like, what I got in this notebook. Like, like I like how you taste. Yes, oh. that's that's one of the many classic <laughs> lines. Also the scene where he is uh he's just so tormented uh in the garage, just kind of fling himself against that pole, pulls his hair apart, you know. Crashes to the yeah. ground. Classic James. Yep. Classic uh, James. Uh, or them making out on like the hub wheel thing of the car is Oof. is is brutal. Like it's 
It's brutal. I just can't even. It's so. That one's steamy. But anyway. Steamy. And, yeah. and what's really <laughs> remarkable is that this subplot is so bad that it's it somehow manages to be worse than the little Nikki stuff, which is. <laughs> I know. Which is saying which something. Which is truly. Like you know, um, Ethan made a good point connecting the, connecting it to the uh, you know the problem child movies which were kicking around at the time, which is right. uh, something yeah. I totally would not have thought of, but it's totally true. If these scenes had been in like a sitcom at the time, they would have been dismissed as hacky. And in the context of mm-hmm. Twin Peaks, it's just like why, 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 why? <laughs> and uh, you know, like I tried to like watching it this time, I was like, okay, I'm actually going to sort of pay attention to like how this plot line develops, like knowing how brutally stupid it gets at over the course of these episodes. And the thing that is just so truly nuts about it is you get that scene with Dick Tremaine out with little Nikki on some kind of a drive or whatever. And the car is broken down and Dick is like on his picnic blanket working on the wheel. And after way too much time spent on this sequence between two characters we don't particularly care about and have no relationship to you know little Nikki becomes upset when the car falls down and and you know he's like oh I hope you don't get killed like I'm so sad and you read it as like oh man this kid has been so you know abandoned so often like he's upset and there's almost a note of emotion in it cut to two scenes later Dick pulling Andy aside saying I think little Nikki is the devil or at the very least homicidal how do you get from that scene yeah. with little Nikki being upset to Dick, like, making that claim? Like, as even just basic writing stuff, it is it is so spectacularly stupid that I can't keep up with it. I was, I was shocked. I was convinced that in those episodes, there was a clearer bridge between behavior, Nikki's behavior, to that conclusion, but evidently not. And to drag this plot line out for whatever it is, two episodes worth... Just to prove this point that um, Dick and Andy are not particularly well suited to being fathers and are are just children, I mean, to spend two episodes trying to make that point is is just appalling. And the and the way that it's so sloppily done, it, like yeah, it's it's appalling. When to be to be fair, of course, we already knew that neither <laughs> Dick Tremaine nor Andy was particularly suited. Like this is not a point that needed to be made. No. Um especially and I and I said this to Olivia while we're watching it. It's like again, the writers thinking they need to fill up time or something and so they create this weird structure. You know, maybe they thought there was sort of a structural joke in this that just completely falls flat, but the idea that like any part of that plot line that was ever interesting, like, you know, Lucy and Andy together were always a great, that was always a great scene, like reliably great Lucy and Andy together. Yeah. And then they introduce Dick to this. And what ends up happening is that Dick and Andy go off on all of these moronic adventures with little Nikki and like, forget that Lucy exists. Like Lucy's not even really part of that, <laughs> except at the end when she comes in and is like the wagging finger mother. And it, it's just mystifying to me. Like, why anybody thought that would be a Honestly, thing? Honestly, the, the only want. thing that could have saved that plot line would have been if near the end, Doc Hayward leads into Lucy and is like, look, late term abortion is legal in this state, okay? Like, <laughs> that would have been the only thing. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes, that would have been, that would have been perfect. No, it's, it's, that stuff is all brutal. Uh, we can probably bring up now. My personal, maybe least favorite plot line after the... I mean, James and Evelyn is always the least favorite. But after James and Evelyn, my personal least favorite has got to be the Widow Milford stuff. Um, 
So for viewers who don't remember, this is Robin Lively coming in as a guest star uh, who is at first married to Dougie Milford until she, quote, kills him with sex. <laughs> and then uh, the, uh, what's the brother? Dwayne Milford is the old mayor brother. Uh, and you get a whole series of episodes here where the arc of the plot line is uh, Dwayne Milford hates her and is convinced that, you know, she's uh, killed the brother and then eventually they get together. And there are a few points worth making here. Um, let's start with the first one, I guess, that we didn't discover until rewatching it this time. And I, I am so shocked about this. So, okay, Simon, if you remember, there's the scene where uh, Dwayne Milford shows up at the sheriff's station uh, with the shotgun and is like holding her, uh, you know, like her arms up or whatever in front of this shotgun and all of the cops and everybody come out and they're like oh you know and they try to defuse the situation and cooper says uh Dwayne, why don't you talk to her let's let them talk to each other together uh you know you could always shoot later talk first and and you know he's convinced by this and everyone's like okay 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 and they send the two of them into a room together and you don't notice it unless you watch closely they never take the I shotgun know. away from the old man <laughs> They send him into a room with this unarmed woman with a shotgun. And then the point is, like, they clearly know that this is not good because after five minutes goes by, they bust into the room with guns drawn. Local law enforcement, am I right? Classic conflict resolution. You see someone hold up a shotgun to a woman, back away slowly, and make, but make sure, if you do nothing else, that he keeps his gun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So anyway, so that, okay, that's just one thing I needed to know, but that's not the reason why I hate this plot line. The reason I hate this plot line is no doubt obvious to people listening, but um, oh, there's just so many things wrong with it. But like you have at least two prolonged sequences over the course of these five episodes, maybe even more, where we're supposed to believe that there's, she, she has this like mystical feminine quality that makes her this unbelievably attractive object that men can't help but fall down in front of. Uh, you know, like Dick Tremaine is quoting Shakespeare and every time she's around, all five men at the sheriff's station lose their mind, including Cooper, which is just so problematic on so many levels. Because A, like, I mean, sorry, but none of these men were ever the kind of guy that would be sort of an ogler. But that's particularly true of Coop. And I mean, and the point, like, why? Like, they throw all of this sort of stuff away. Like, they throw these male characters under the bus, turning them into sort of idiots for no particular reason. Like, what is the, why do we care about this woman who is supposed to be this, like, magical enchantress? It doesn't matter. It is so No, it's, it's really bad. It's yeah. it's like literally every character comes on screen and like and like a cartoon sound effect comes on exactly and yeah. like even Hawk gets in on it which is like why why do this to Hawk I know it's a good idea to start fleshing out his character more and to like give him comic moments and you know get him more involved but did it have to be here it's... his girlfriend has a PhD from Brandeis for God's sake <laughs> yeah right exactly. I love that you both love that the <laughs> nerds. But, um, <laughs> but you know, like, and this is like, just to be totally superficial about this, like, this is a show with like Peggy Lipton and Cheryl and Finn and, and like, like oh, this whole bevy of gorgeous women. And you're just now going to lose it over this like rando, yeah. like no offense to Robin Lively, but like. Really, like, you're going to choose now to become, like... Simon, she talks about it in interviews. She was like, I read the script for this part, and I was like, 
this show has such gorgeous women on it. Like, I'm supposed to be this thing that all of the men lose their minds over? And for her, it, like, her response to that was to come up with the choice to use a southern accent. Because apparently, like, using a southern accent is code for being some other type of female that is unappropriate. You know, like, it, I, there's just so many problems. Like, this, like, stereotype of the southern belle, uh, the, the damsel in distress. Oh, by the way, we haven't even... I Thank you for reminding me to, to say what I actually found to be the most disgusting element of this plotline on rewatch, uh, which is that you get that sequence... I think it's at the beginning of one of the episodes uh, where you open on a close-up of Robin Lively's stirrup pants as, like, the height of sexy fashion in the 90s. <laughs> anyway, so you pan up, and it's uh, her and Jacoby at the sheriff's office, and Jacoby is announcing to all of the sheriffs and everybody that after his hard work of spending, you know, two days with her... Uh, and having sex with her, he has cured her of her curse because of his, like, good work as a therapist. I almost, like, it is nauseating. Like, that is nauseating. Like, this idea that the writers thought it was a reasonable thing to have uh, uh, somebody who's supposed to be a doctor saying, I have cured this young, beautiful woman of a curse by having sex with her as her doctor. I... It makes me want to barf. And, like, I get that Jacoby is not supposed to be a good character. I get this. But here's the difference. In season one, when you have Jacoby sort of really inappropriately, like, having this relationship with Laura where he's sort of fallen in love with Laura and all of that kind of plays into this whole other level stuff around everybody in town sort of appropriating Laura for themselves. Like, it says something very particular about Jacoby, that even though his job is supposed to be caring for Laura, he has instead turned this into a narrative about himself of falling in love with Laura and not being able to have her. And that works on a kind of, like, meta level of what the show is aware of. Here, one does not get the sense that the writers are aware that it's a disgusting choice to have a therapist, like, advocating for his hard work of sleeping with his patient and all the good work he's done by it. It's just disgusting. Like, I... I anyway... There's there's Ugh. another thing going on in these episodes that is I'm I'm sure you you couldn't help but pick up on this uh, especially Kate that like as long as we're on the subject of men being creepy to women in these episodes uh everyone's treatment of Audrey is really really weird in these episodes like yeah. like for some reason like Bobby is making a pass at her it's just like where he, when he's been with Shelley for the entire show I guess just because mm-hmm. you know Cheryl and Fenn is so hot that he has to even like the, the way that it's blocked uh, when they're doing the, um, the 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 Civil War reenactment stuff, like Jerry seems to be taking a pa- like her uncle seems to be yeah. taking a pass. Yeah. Like, why is this happening? Yeah. No, it's uh, it's not good, and that's another thing that I hate. I hate all that stuff with with Bobby inexplicably turning away from Shelley to hit on Audrey doesn't make any sense at all and like it, it at the, you know like uh what's his name Dana Ashbrook has sort of talked about this he was like you know they kind of wanted me to get together with Audrey it, it all of it is symptomatic of them not knowing what to do with Audrey yeah. like thinking that this is going to be something to do with Bobby I hate it I hate the fact that we have so little Shelly in these episodes like that Shelly completely like she doesn't finally we get a scene with her in the last episode here where she goes back to the diner and you're like hallelujah Shelly and Norma are back together yeah but you just sort of lose her and she becomes like she's already this horrible like it's so like bad battered and, and abused and, and Bobby like abandoning her it's and it doesn't read as like there's no pathos it's just bad it's just bad writing it's just crap and so um, you yeah. already have you know in our favorite uh, narrative with the the Evelyn Malcolm stuff you already have this narrative where 
a woman is mistreated by a, this horrible husband, and then you know Malcolm, her her lover, ends up being just a replacement for that husband. But then you're also going to have Bobby basically turn into Leo. Like why why have Bobby turn into Leo? You know, and mistreat Shelley like that. It's just just layering it on a bit too thick. Yeah, and as uh, I guess the sort of the last thing we haven't really discussed is <sighs> Josie. Yep. Josie, oh, Josie. I mean, these episodes really reveal just how, like, we've already talked about how it was clear they never had a coherent plan for Josie, and these episodes make that plain, and everything just gets worse and worse and worse, culminating with, to my mind, a sequence that is more baffling, more offensive, and more misbegotten than anything even in Diane Keaton's episode, which is really saying something. And now I'm starting to think of, well, how would Diane Keaton have directed this sequence? And then I get a migraine and I kill myself. Um, <laughs> so, and it's, of course, you know, uh, this this sequence where, you know, there's this absurd standoff uh, with, with uh, Josie and, Coop. and Coop and the sheriff and... Uh, and we find out that she's the one who shot Coop, which I, oh, I'm sure they had that planned well in advance. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and she just spontaneously dies. And then, to my knowledge, you can correct me on this if I'm wrong. This is the only non-Lynch directed episode that really dives into the into the red room imagery. Yes and no, because the the one with Tim Hunter, where uh, the, the episode sixteen, where Leland is in the jail, you get some you get the stuff with the giant and the spotlight. Oh, the you're right. You're right. The roadhouse oh, there too. yeah. Yeah. But you know, um, you know, we get we get we get you know Michael J. Anderson, and we get uh, the spotlight here, and we get and we anyway we get all that stuff for no good reason. We have Bob coming out from behind the bed and saying, what happened to dead Josie? And it's just the worst. And then she goes into the knob and then you question everything about your own life while watching it. It's just, <laughs> you really, I was, I was evaluating my life choices during that sequence. It was so bad. I remember watching Twin Peaks the first time when I was sort of 18 or whatever. And I, you know, I'm getting into the bad episodes and like, I, you know, when you're, and, and I'm sure viewers who aren't, you are fairly new to the show or whatever, had that same experience maybe where you watch it all the way through once and you're not watching it that critically. And you're like, yeah, these episodes aren't great, but you're not sort of sitting around thinking like, oh my God, they're the absolute worst or, or even noting exactly all the shifts. And that's how my experience was watching it the first time around until you get to the doorknob stuff. And I'm like, what like that did did they just put josie in a doorknob it's not, it's like, not even I, a doorknob it's the knob on a i mean or whatever a, a bedside a drawer, drawer a drawer knob which is somehow worse it, i just <laughs> there is it's an inferior knob it's just it's ridiculous knob. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't even give a josie a doorknob they couldn't knob. give her a proper knob to get like a nice in. a nice brass you know door handle or something couldn't even give her that or a crystal door handle. Yeah. I mean, come that's, on. That's like, how little really. they value Josie. <sighs> Apparently, I don't know. I mean, again, from the little reading you can do about this, there was sort of a sense that this was like something that Lynch had wanted, like in the development of these plot lines. And uh, again, this idea that like she maybe goes to something like the Black Lodge or there's this like imprisonment by the, these bad forces in Twin Peaks, like Bob and everybody would maybe make a lick of sense if there had been anything leading up to it. 
that even remotely explained like why Josie would be singled out for that kind of treatment versus everybody else who's bad in Twin Peaks doing bad things or like you know is it that every time somebody does something bad they swoop in and imprison people it's just like there's never any nearly enough explanation for that to 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 register as anything other than completely bonkers yeah. but there is a couple of points that we should also make about the uh, the two things I wanted to add about the Josie um plot line that are are just you're just sort of like why one is something that that maybe has annoyed me more rewatching it and it gets so much more noticeable in the second sequence in the second season well there's two things the first one is whatever happened to the way they used to write how Josie speaks where Josie had difficulty with English and Josie would use Right? And Josie would use sort of, like, uh, unusual phrasing because she was picking it up from, like, her English husband. Like, all of this stuff. Or whatever Andrew's supposed to be. He's not supposed to be English. But, you know. Where did that go? Because that was always actually really part of her character and sort of, like, was specific. Anyway, so that's bizarre that they just dropped that somewhere along the way. Um, The second thing is... Is and I don't begrudge Joan Chen this. I think Joan, Joan Chen is a, a perfectly reasonable actress, and I think she's a very impressive woman, actually, in a lot of ways. But with this crap that they're giving her to do and perpetually putting her in this position of sort of vulnerable woman that just gets worse and worse over these episodes, this translates into Joan Chen doing this perpetual performance thing where she's just constantly rubbing herself, like, arms on her neck and on her chest and on her, like, face. And it, it just is so like weird and off-putting that's not great uh and then the last thing that um olivier caught i had never noticed this before but you get the information about um jonathan aka mr lee and his demise in seattle that he's been shot via a fax of a newspaper (laughs) article titled asian man killed exclamation point exclamation point exclamation point Okay, so it is it's, so, it's just so awful. I'm pretty oh sure God. it's only two exclamation points because I made a note of it. No, Simon, we, we are count the three. It. It's wow, three. it's it's three exclamation. Okay, so points. I have my theories for how this all happened uh, that I just developed over the space of the last several seconds. Um, <laughs> so my thinking is that every all of this happened over like a game of broken telephone with David Lynch, where like he had a perfectly reasonable <laughs> idea for how Josie's demise should come about. But he was, like, on the set of Wild at Heart in the middle of, like, a sandstorm or something, trying to communicate that to, you know, one of the other producers. And they misheard it as, oh, yeah, he wants Josie to get stuck in a in a knob. I don't know what the original <laughs> thing was, but it couldn't have been that. And I also think that, you know, they he was relaying how, you know, these other plot points and just offhandedly said something like, and the newspaper should say... Asian man killed or something. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's just, you know, I, I don't know. Like, it, 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 it seems like it's like, you know, when you it's like when you're reading a, a like a, a, an article about someone who's died, only they haven't really died because it was just like a placeholder and it gets published by mistake. Like these could not have been deliberate choices. Yeah, that's, actually, that, that's such yeah. a great that's such a great point. I never thought of it that way. Like, can you imagine being on set or working on Wild at Heart, which you know, ma- many of you have seen? It's just a completely insane film, and having to juggle Wild at Heart and these these narratives. Or am I in a like? Is it a different timeline? Kate? We should. Yeah, I should clarify. So Lynch was not working on Wild at Heart at this point. Lynch was working on Wild at Heart uh, earlier, and it had come out. That fall, I think. Ah, shit. I should have. I should have double checked all of this. I don't believe Lynch was working a while at heart at this point. I think Lynch had left to go work on an art show in Japan and was like working on other projects. Like he was in development for other stuff, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't Wild at Heart. Anyway, right. 
but w- w- whatever he was working on, it wasn't Twin Peaks. Clearly, <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. There's yeah, exactly. There's just no way. Like people, whoever said that this idea came from Lynch, like I, I, it. Someone got their wires crossed. Either his instructions were misinterpreted, or his vision for how this could be executed was utterly misread. Yeah, I think so. It sounds like generally there was a kind of a wild set of breakdowns in communication that were happening. Um, like I, I'm, you know, I'm only about halfway through the chapter of uh, this book, this Twin Peaks oral history book that is describing some of these things. So I can't. Uh, maybe next week I can relay more of it. But effectively, it was like you know, even Mark Frost being pulled away at this point, um, where there had been a sort of setup where you know, even with Lynch away, Lynch was kind of working pretty closely with Frost to to make things go the way that you know, Lynch maybe wanted them to with Frost and Frost was really good at managing all of that and managing Lynch from afar. And then Frost leaves and now it's Peyton and Engels managing everything. And apparently like, you know, and Peyton's on record saying this, that like by the end of the series, him and Lynch were really not on good terms anymore because, you know, Lynch maybe had not a great habit of like, you know, like Lynch would be sent scripts to review them but he maybe wasn't reviewing them in a timely fashion. And uh, whereas the setup had been that he would effectively call Frost at the last minute and saying, well, change X, Y, and Z, and it should be more like this, and Frost could make that happen. You know, Lynch was doing things like calling directors the night before something was being filmed and saying, I don't like this, you need to move all this stuff around and change it. Like after the whole shot set up for the next day was designed, after the actors were booked, and it and it wasn't working. And so Peyton sort of stepped in and was like, no, the directors need to do what the directors need to do. And Lynch was angry about this. And anyway, so things were really going off the rails in terms of like communication structures and who was in charge. And apparently, you know, like this is somebody extrapolating, so who knows how true this is. But there's a question as to whether Lynch maybe felt kind of you know, not on great terms because it had been his show and then he'd left and he wasn't really part of the scene anymore and didn't feel very welcome. And so there's a lot of bad stuff in the air there. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you couldn't you couldn't guess exactly. just from and, watching the show. <laughs> I know. And and we haven't even mentioned this yet, but uh the final episode here that we watched, episode twenty three, the one where Josie ends in the doorknob, after that episode is when Twin Peaks was put on hiatus, is when the network pulled it effectively. Uh, and there's different stories for that. I mean, Mark Frost talks about it being because of the Gulf War, whereas maybe more likely it's because ABC had just had it and wanted to, again, like euthanize the show. Uh, I mean, they were still filming, like they still continued to film. Uh, and then this is what culminates, I forget the calendar here, like you can look this up. Uh, so this episode aired on February 16th. The next episode didn't air until March 28th. So there was six weeks of difference there. And this is where Lynch went on Letterman and like asked people to write into the network to get them taken back off hiatus and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but the the um, ratings were as low as they'd ever been for the show with Condemned Woman. They were like below eight million, which is less than you know, like they'd lost more than two thirds of their original audience. And so things are not good in Twin Peaks land here. Can you imagine having just aired this episode in which Josie gets trapped in a bedside knob and then having the gall to go on late night television and be like, please give us more episodes. (laughs) No, I can't. I can't imagine that, but it happened. (laughs) Like that is truly wilder than anything that happens on Twin Peaks. Like, the fact that Lynch had the stones to do that. So, I mean, good on him, I guess. And obviously, there we do end up getting good good stuff again. It just takes yeah. a little bit longer. And I'm not even sure, you guys, I'm not even sure we've we've touched the bottom of the pond here. Serious? Like there's Yeah, Simon, there's some stuff on the horizon, particularly with Harry, that is 
brutal. But we'll but we'll see. We're 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 almost at the bottom. It's it's we're we're turning around soon. The pine weasel. The pine weasel is coming. The pine weasel Everyone... scene is one of the only good scenes in all of these episodes, and I can't believe I, I'm saying I know, that. Right? Oh man. <laughs> we have more Billy Zane on the horizon. I mean, who doesn't want more Billy Zane? Like, come on. <sighs> He's, you know, like this ersatz cope character. Uh, this, I mean, what is Billy Zane's deal? Like, this is, I, <laughs> I don't know what his deal is. I was saying this to me, like, he's just sort of like, he's like good looking, like smushed into a human body, but there's just not much. I, I don't know. I'm mystified by him. I have always been. I don't understand. You know, you know what's, you anyway. know what though is like, Billy Zane should have been Windmerl. Yeah, that's I really true, believe eh? that. that. Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna yeah. have him on, and he's gonna have this weird presence, that's what they should have done. Like, they should they should have cast someone Billy Zane level weird for that. Uh, yeah. And <laughs> and then Billy Zane, and then you know, then you could have that character just not exist. Because why? Yep. And then uh, because right now Simon he gets his introduction as a character is to meet Audrey Horn and say to her, "I have a photo of you as a little girl." in a dirndl and it's unforgettable <laughs> like the, the he actually says that, the idea that he hits on her by saying i have a photo of you as a toddler I, it is I, what is wrong with the writers of this show but, you know Simon, that's a that's a great point if you just swap the actors if wyndham earl plays ben hord's old business buddy i mean that that actually that actually yeah. makes sense right because it that's totally makes sense. We were confused about is why is Billy Zane, a man of this age, one of Ben Horn's closest associates and business friends, just friends in general. I just it makes no sense. Whereas the Wyndham Earl uh, actor, I can't remember his name now, but yeah, would have made Ke- Kenneth Kenneth Welsh. Welsh. Should have made a perfect yeah. perfect match right. for that, and a perfect match for Audrey. Too, exactly. Yeah, right? Like we could have Kenneth Welsh. And I was just Audrey about to say the in. only problem is then you have a scene of Kenneth Welsh saying, "Audrey, I had a picture of you from when you were a toddler, and you were really hot." But that works. It makes more sense. <laughs> Somehow. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Oh. Oh, man. But I, that's actually, compl- I do completely agree with that, though. Billy Zane or somebody in a similar a similar mode being cast against Cooper. Especially because there, there actually would be a really interesting tension there with them being maybe sort of similar to each other or something in a certain kind of way. I mean, it's... I don't know. It's difficult to understand how there ever would have been a version of Wyndham Earl that could have been the character that taught Coop everything he knows. You know, like Coop keeps talking about him as like this important spiritual sort of guide for himself. It's just like it, n- none of it ever makes any sense. It doesn't work at all. Nope. One last thing. One last thing and then we'll wrap it up because this is ridiculous. So Olivia and I were watching it this time and um, where you get again like another description by Coop talking to Harry about what happened with him and this witness woman who was killed. And by the way, in different scenes, Coop calls her Carolyn, and then he also calls her Caroline. So it's not quite clear what her actual name. He doesn't is. remember. But anyway, when he he doesn't remember, it doesn't it was like matter. Four years ago, when when he's exactly this was like a while ago. Stop asking. She me was the it. love of my life, when... and I'll miss her forever. I'm not sure what her name was though. <laughs> revealed what happened when he says um like when because the new piece of information we get there is he says to harry and actually caroline was windham earl's wife so just stop for a second and realize that what that means is that the fbi assigned coop and the witness's husband (laughs) 
to be the protection detail for her in a cr- like it there is just such a blatant level of of the writers not even dealing with like basic logic stuff like i am not the kind of viewer that really cares about that stuff i can let stuff slide but honestly the level of stupidity involved in some of these writing decisions anyway whatever uh, the, the 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 story tragedy of cooper and what's her name <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) Anyway, I hope you've all enjoyed uh, our collective breakdown of sanity as we've tried to make sense of these episodes. We will be covering a similar amount of ground, actually exactly the same amount of ground next week, uh, which will, to my recollection, actually feature some good stuff near the end. But I might just be wrong. And I might at this point, I've you're right, Kate, that sitting down and watching these critically and not just as like a distracted um sort of like like wait you know wait for the fireworks factory type situation is truly demoralizing and upsetting <laughs> it really is yeah it really is it's not good well let's I'll, I'll do one slight little positive thing just to let viewers go out on a on a nicer note uh in the last episode the condemned woman there is like a really great moment in it which is that leslie lincoln gladder who is a solid director does something really interesting which i've never noticed before which is that she replicates the opening shot of the show you get josie sitting at her uh, mirror putting on her makeup and it's shot exactly the same way that it is in the opening and the camera moves as Josie turns around and it's like a scene for scene like shot for shot remake huh. of the opening which I thought was a nice little touch so we'll we'll say that at the end there just yeah. so people don't go out on such a demoralized note I will say that there's one legitimately hilarious line in that episode uh, where they're all sitting at dinner and Ben excuses himself because quote uh, the cook has threatened to stab Jerry which is <laughs> oh, like yeah. an actually really funny moment That's true all right, okay, and then one more, one more funny thing, and then I'll leave it. So, because Olivia and I were like tears of laughter when this happens, is the in the early episodes with Dead Dog Farm, where uh, Denise has just met Audrey, and Audrey walks out of the room, and Denise is like, "How old is Audrey?" and, and Coop is like, "Oh, I would have thought you wouldn't be interested in girls anymore." And David Duchovny does does such a perfect line reading of his response, which is, "I may like to wear women's clothing, Coop, but I still put my panties on one leg at a time." You know what I mean? And as he walks out of the room, Coop is like, not really. (laughs) (laughs) That's how that ends. I just, it makes me laugh every time. And it's yet another example of maybe sort of the more progressive elements of the show. But isn't it funny that they actually do decent work with with Denise, but they like fall on their asses with every other aspect, like just basic elements of men and women interacting for all these episodes? Or Asian Asian man kill, double exclamation point. (laughs) Jesus Christ. (laughs) Just the worst. (laughs) All right. I want to thank you, Olivier, for uh, going on this journey with us. And, yeah, uh, of course. And seeming to remain more or less intact. Uh, I hope everyone has enjoyed our collective experience here. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, join us next week, maybe. <laughs> what? <laughs> or not. Or just wait for the new episodes or whatever. I mean, who even cares? We're all going to die. <laughs> just anyway. I mean... I'll I'll tell all you viewers out there the the tapestry of flutes uh, continues to be woven throughout the show so keep watching. <laughs> Great, thanks, Olivier. Now, like for the entire rest of the show, all I'm going to hear is not dialogue, just the <laughs> flutes whenever they come up. Just, just flutes. All right, thanks, yep. thanks, y'all. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back next week, probably. <laughs>